This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, howdy, Bridgeway. I want to add my words of welcome. I'm Pastor Ron. Great to see you here today and uh, excited to be back. I was traveling last weekend and got to be at a, an amazing, inspiring conference with some other pastors and Futurists, so I, I am pumped and excited to share with you this morning. As you already heard, we are in the book of Revelation. We're trying to take a, a really confusing book in the Bible and try to bring some clarity to it. So if you got a Bible, I would love for you to turn to Revelation chapter 13 this morning. And uh, as you're finding your way there, I just want to say this. One of the things about, uh, about having the opportunity to get away, I get to see some other churches and get to be around other leaders, and it's so inspiring, but it's it's also just good to be home. And, and I got to tell you, I love uh, worshiping with you, and I consider it a great honor and privilege to get to bring God's word to you. But uh, something else, too, is I, I just love our team here at Bridgeway. And uh, we want to be the type of church that both honors God's word and honors the people who bring it. While I was away last weekend, Pastor Justin did a phenomenal job in Revelation chapter 5, and I couldn't be more thankful for that. Could you put your hands together and thank him for bringing the word last weekend? So, so good. So grateful for him. And if this is your first Sunday here, I want to try to catch you up to speed. This is actually our our sixth message in the series on the book of Revelation. And uh, if you haven't been here, don't worry. I'll I'll try to catch you up a little bit. In fact, um, to this point, we've learned a lot. We've learned that our author is a guy by the name of John. He was one of the disciples, original followers of Jesus. And he gets a vision of the end times. Now, I want that just to sink in for a moment. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word vision. I don't know. Maybe that's something. Oh, yeah, every Tuesday I get a vision from God, right? Like, not me. That seems like kind of a rare thing. And then on top of it, it's a vision of the end times, the final battle between good and evil. This is basically how God is going to kind of wrap this whole thing up and put a bow on it. And this is what John receives. Now, he's at a really low point in his life. In fact, he has been faithfully following Jesus. It's landed him Uh, with lots of persecution and lots of mistreatment. He's actually in prison at the time that he's writing this. Um, He has been boiled alive. And Jesus comes at his weakest moment and visits him and, and starts off by saying, hey, to prepare for this end, I need you to warn the churches. And so Jesus gives these seven report cards to these churches that are John's responsibility on mainland Turkey, kind of some of the things they're doing well, some of the things they're not doing so well. And then the scene shifts, kind of like a great movie. It moves from this vision. Now John gets another vision, and this vision is on heaven. Now, let that sink in for a moment. I think John's kind of two for two in the vision category, right? I mean, he's there, and he sees heaven. He sees the throne room of God. He actually sees this this area where the throne is and where God is seated, and from it is this, this like concentric rainbow, emerald rainbow. Uh, there's lightning and peals of thunder coming from it. There's all these crazy creatures flying and singing and worshiping around it. And I tell you all that because if I could only use classic rock songs to describe where we've been so far, so far I would say we've been witnessing the stairway to heaven. And this morning, we're actually going to take a really hard left turn in the book of Revelation. In fact, if I could only use classic rock songs to describe our topic today, it would be none other than the highway to hell. You're going to read and hear about essentially hell on earth. 
I mean, things are about to get really dark in this book. And this is the part of the book that's maybe not so fun to talk about. You might even kind of find yourself feeling almost a little depressed. I would actually want you to maybe, maybe change that into kind of being sobered. I think this word for us is very sobering in kind of a wake-up call on the end times. And as I said, this is not the fun part of Revelation because this part is what all of humanity has been kind of building up to. This is God's judgment on sin and evil. And I know, I've been a pastor for a long time, and, and people don't like the word judgment, right? In fact, everything about our culture today is, don't judge me, and who are you to judge me, right? In fact, in fact what gets all the airplay today is tolerance. You know, you need to be tolerant. You need to be accepting. And while that might be a way in which you can live, a civil way to live in the world, it doesn't really escape the reality and the reality is that our lives will be judged. That's the sobering part. And therefore, it matters what you think and how you act and the sort of things that you do. And they matter, I hope, in this life, but they should now start to matter as you're starting to kind of get this image of eternity. And so I kind of want to ask you a question. As we're making this hard left turn in the book, I want to ask you a question, and it really has to do with this circle on the screen. And the reason I put the circle on the screen is you could kind of say, what's at the center of your life? And as you think about that, I want you to start to connect the dots with this book, because everything we've read so far, as crazy and as wacky as the book of Revelation is, everything is coming from a center. I mean, even the fact that Jesus comes to visit John, he's coming to visit and encourage John. He's coming from the center. We looked uh, at how this throne room, it's God on the throne. I mean, how much more centric do you get than that? Everything is focused. The elders, the, the people in heaven, they're all worshiping. They're all focused. Everything is coming from this throne, even what we're about to read today. And in this, we see that you could kind of say that everything good in life comes from this center. That's heaven. And anything off of that kind of has to start to make you wonder, where is that from? You could say that life flows from the center, right from here. And so how do we go from here to judgment? How do we go from the center, from heaven, to hell? And I'm a pastor. I could probably tell you, well, there's a million ways, right? But there's actually just one way. There's kind of one way to get off center. In fact, um, I'll tell you a story. I was driving down the road this week. I, I won't tell you what road because Rockford is kind of a, a small town. But I was driving down this road and this image is just still burned in my, my mind. There was a car in front of me and it was just all over the road. In fact, it crossed over, more than half of the car crossed over the center line. And then it corrected and it came back and it came all the way to where half the car was over the other lane, into the other lane. And it was just doing this all down this road. And as it did that, I, I kind of grew in my concern. And so I put my own life at risk, and I, I drove up next to this car. And I honestly was concerned. I didn't know if the person was maybe, maybe dozing, dozing off or maybe had been drinking. And, and I was honestly concerned. And so I didn't know what else to do. I, I drive up next to the car, and I, I notice in the passenger seat some very young children in the vehicle. 
And the person driving the car was not dozing off or drinking. They were just scrolling on their phone. And I, I tried to give a little wave like, hey, you know, you're going you're gonna to end up in a ditch or you're going to run someone off the road. And this person never even saw me, just kept on going. And I think this is the image because this is what we need to learn, that the best, the safest way to live is when you're in the center, when you're in God's world. That's heaven. And anything off of center, anything that's approaching a head-on collision or the ditch, that's hell. And I find that this is so fascinating because we can do enough on our own to make life difficult, right? Can I get an amen, Pastor? Like, on our own, we can put ourselves at risk. And what so many people fail to realize is there are also forces of evil that are working overtime to try to pull you away from the center. I mean, if it weren't bad enough on your own, but you've actually got these forces coming up against you, and that's what we're going to read about today. The title of my message is Counterfeit Gods, and I want to look at, at these three forces of evil that are working overtime, and in the end times, basically pure evil to pull humanity away from God. Um, i got to be honest with you, I think all the easy parts uh, in the book of Revelation are done. We've finished them all, and so now we kind of land ourselves in the end times, and we're at the part where the tribulation is occurring. Now, in my view of the end times, the, the church has been raptured away. That means that the people who are, are left on earth, when this all begins, they've actually been caught up and brought to heaven. Uh, they've been raptured away. In fact, um, part of my understanding of this is the word uh, church doesn't get used anywhere in the book of Revelation after chapter 3. So I believe that the church has been raptured, and this tribulation occurs. Tribulation is essentially the judgments of God. Justin brought us right up to the beginning of that last week. If you were here, he talked about this scroll that had seven seals on it. And from Revelation chapter 6 all the way to the end of chapter 12, uh, God is opening the scroll. He's taking off these seals. And each seal is another judgment on creation and all of humanity. And so these seals get broken and these horses get unleashed in devastation. There's there's, there's famine and pestilence and fires coming down. There's actually uh, another series after the seven seals. Seven trumpets get blown. These are seven more judgments against evil. These are things like where mountains get picked up and thrown into the ocean. Just crazy stuff. And it's devastating. It's literally hell on earth. And it's in this time then that we see people actually uh, have an opportunity to come to God. But evil is on full display. In fact, that's what we're going to read here in Revelation 13. Right after this, you would see that some people, because of this evil, uh, become saved in it. In fact, there's a remnant. There's 12,000, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews, that get saved. And then right after that, it says that many more people from every tribe and nation and people group get saved. But at this time, God is allowing Satan and his demons, these counterfeit gods, to rule earth before this Armageddon, this final battle, and this final judgment. We're going to read Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 1. This is John. He says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. 
and to it the dragon gave his authority. Now let me just pause there for a moment. I've, you've just read about the beast, and now you're also reading about the dragon. I'm going to come back and explain these two characters in just a moment. Gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Okay, we've got the beginning here of this unleashing of evil. And we're introduced to this very creepy beast, right? I mean, this beast that rises up out of the sea. Now, I don't think this requires explanation, but you can probably tell that this obviously isn't coming from the center, from the will of God. This is off-center. This is an attack against the center. It's got blasphemous names written all over it. We don't know exactly what that means, but that would have been a mockery of God. And it's disturbing, um, the text doesn't tell us here, but in other places in Scripture, places like 2 Thessalonians and 1 Peter, we're told that a lawless one would come. And that lawless one would be the Antichrist. The first beast coming out of the sea is the Antichrist. If that isn't enough, there's this other disturbing creature, this dragon. And it's giving its power to the beast. You can kind of assume that the dragon is the ringleader. And the dragon in Scripture, again, not hard to guess, isn't coming from the center. This is an attack against the center. This is pure evil. In fact, the dragon is Satan himself. And you might be reading this thinking, this is, this is scary, this is frightening, and that is entirely intentional on the part of evil. And in fact, I, I've always um, wanted this community to have a, a healthy understanding of spiritual warfare because we're told that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the people around us. It's against the forces and the powers and the principalities of evil. And if you haven't heard me say this before, I've said many times that the enemy only really has three tactics. It's only got three ways to try to pull you away from the center. The first way is to just simply get you to believe that evil doesn't exist, that things aren't so bad, that that's not so wrong. I think if we're honest, we look at our world today and Evil's done a pretty good job of convincing a lot of people, I'm not here. I'm not at work. And if that doesn't work, then the enemy will move in a second tactic, and this is what I would call compromise. Let's make a deal. You know, you like a little bit of evil. Seems all right. You know, seems like it's okay to do that. It's not exactly what God would want you to do, but the enemy comes alongside of you and says, well, let's make a deal. And many people live their lives in compromise to God's word. And if that doesn't work, and again, we're in the end times with what we're reading right here, the enemy will throw its final tactic, which is essentially a scare tactic, to frighten you, to scare you, to make you think that the enemy is more powerful than God. And we see that. This is sort of what you would say. This is kind of the last dance for evil, right? And so it's showing itself in its purest form, the purest form of evil that it possibly could be. And it seems to be working, right? On a couple occasions in that text, it says that people are marveling at the beast, at the Antichrist. They're marveling at the dragon. They're worshiping. Kind of interesting, it says that the beast, this Antichrist, has this mortal wound, like it'd been killed. And then it was healed from this mortal wound. And it kind of lets you believe that this Antichrist could, 
could actually perform miracles, could do healings, could really look like quite the spectacle. In fact, verse 4 right here, who is like the beast? They're saying this. Who can fight against it? It's kind of this on and on refrain. People in the end times, despite all the devastation, despite all these tribulation and these seals being opened and these trumpets being sounded, some people, despite all of that, still choose evil. Evil is kind of gaining popularity in the end times. You know, I hesitate to say this, but um, I know what many of you might be inclined to do, which is to kind of go to the internet and start searching for, well, you know, what is the beast and what is the antichrist? And, and I'm just going to kind of dispel some of the conspiracy theories that are out there because I find them to be not very helpful for a Christian. In fact, this dragon and beast, some people kind of think it's sort of the Batman and Robin of evil. And over time, there's been a really clear labeling by some people as to who the dragon and who the beast are, who's the Antichrist. And, and a lot of times this gets kind of targeted at political leaders. And I talked to a few people between the service that added a few more conspiracy theories to my list. But I'll keep this brief. In fact, um, there was a great feeling that Hitler and the Nazi regime was the dragon and the beast. And that era came and went. And then there was, of course, um, in my childhood, I remember, I remember hearing that Mikhail Gorbachev and the Soviet Union were uh, these forces of evil, the Antichrist. Of course, if you remember history, Mikhail Gorbachev had that really strange uh, birthmark on his head. And so many people kind of uh, you put the conspiracy out there that that was the mortal wound that had been healed. A really, really good professor in uh, Chicago, a guy by the name of Scott McKnight, uh, traced kind of the political banter that goes back and forth. You know, that happens in an election cycle. And the most frequently cited Antichrist uh, was Bill Clinton during his era, and then more recently, Donald Trump, of course. You can go ahead and figure all that. And obviously, those eras have come and have gone. And what I want you to see is, is what we read in the Scriptures aren't even close to what we've experienced here in our history, in our lifetime. In fact, I think one of the main reasons against these conspiracies is the trio is not even complete. It, all of evil hasn't been unleashed, and we're about to read about this last partner in evil. Picking back up, Revelation 13, dropping down to verse 11. John writes, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the beast whose mortal wound was healed. And it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now let me just kind of ask, how many of you feel like you're reading Godzilla meets King Kong meets the dragon from Middle Earth, right? Like, I mean, this is about as wild as it could get. Now, I'll just say a couple words about this character. Um, this beast, so we have a beast rising out of the sea. We have a beast rising out of the earth. And this beast rising out of the earth, we're told, looks like a lamb. Does that sound familiar at all? Again, if you were here last week, Justin did an excellent job of telling you that in the throne room, in the, in the heavenly realms, they were looking for the lion in the tribe of Judah, and they found the lamb that had been slain. They found Jesus. And so now we have this 
beast that looks like a lamb, looks like Jesus, but actually speaks like a dragon. It, it spews evil with its words. And we could go on and on and look at each of the descriptions of each of the beasts, but as I said, I want you to begin to kind of connect the dots with what's going on here. We have this trio that's now complete. You would call this beast rising up out of the earth as the false prophet. It's pointing people to the Antichrist and to the dragon. So, let's recap. We have the dragon, that's Satan himself. We have the first beast, that's the Antichrist. Antichrist. And then we have the second beast, which is the false prophet. Now, what I want you to connect on this is if you think of God for a moment. God is also three persons. God is the Father, God is the Son, Jesus, and God is this Holy Spirit, this power among us. And so it should not surprise us that evil would do everything it can to imitate, to be a counterfeit of what God is. If God is a holy trinity, then what I've just described for you is the unholy trinity, the knockoffs, the counterfeits, the imitations of who God is. And while we're reading about the end times, I don't want you to miss that there's a battle here and now in the spiritual realm that's going on currently. And it looks a little differently because obviously we're not in the end times yet, but it looks a lot like this. It looks a lot like imitation. It looks a lot like counterfeits. And the great test and the great need, I think, is for Christians to have this radar, to actually begin to test, what am I seeing in the world and how does that add up with what I know to be truth, to be scripture, to be God's plan? Because the enemy is doing his best to deceive and to lead people astray from now until the very end in his destruction. This is spiritual awareness. And what I would want you to take from this is to think of it this way, that everything that is pure and holy, Satan and his beasts, work to imitate and distort. Everything that's pure and holy, Satan imitates and distorts. And I don't know, I've been thinking all week about how clearly I see this today. In fact, I'm not looking to pick a fight at all, but if you just take, take any hot button issue today and see if it passes through this test. Take anything that, that was perceived as pure and holy and now gets imitated and distorted. I've been thinking for quite some time uh, just about where do you see in our day-to-day, -day, where, where do you see in our culture um, anyone kind of lift up masculinity? Where is that ever celebrated in our culture? At the same time, you would have to show me where do you see femininity lifted up in our culture today. I'm not talking about objectifying women. We do plenty of that in our culture today. But like the idea that masculinity is good and femininity is good, where is that shared in our culture today? In fact, instead, what we see is this gender dysphoria hits all of the headlines. And you cannot escape it. You have a hard time knowing the definition of what is a man and what is a woman. And we see this over and over again. In fact, um, I won't even try to recap the news for you this week, but if you paid any attention, you saw how, how Coles has chosen and Target has chosen. And I just was even last night scrolling through my social media. I shouldn't be doing that on a Saturday night before I have to preach. But I couldn't help myself, and I noticed 
Glamour magazine, and their cover story was Logan Brown, the first pregnant trans man. I, I read every word of the article so that I could not be accused of misquoting or misunderstanding this celebration of this trans man who is now pregnant. Now, you read through his story, and he was a woman and has not had uh, the changes to where he's unable to carry a child. But this is what gets celebrated. And anything that's pure and holy, take marriage, for instance. I, I love celebrating marriages and officiating them. And I don't know if you realize this, but they actually, they actually check up on weddings and they make sure that someone actually officiated them because there's a lot of fraud in uh, marriage certificates. And so I'll get a call. I haven't gotten one recently, but I, I get a call quite regularly. And they'll say something like, are you Reverend Ron Albach? And did you officiate this ma marriage on this day? And, you know, all, of one, all the ones I've done have not been fraudulent. I haven't gotten a call on any fraudulent marriages yet. I'm grateful. But I've gotten these calls, and, and I've found them to be interesting conversations with the state of Michigan employees around the topic of marriage. And so I've asked things that I probably shouldn't, like, like well, what church is most guilty of performing, you know, <laughs> fraudulent marriages? Like, it's probably us. It's probably non-denominational churches. And I'll never forget the one person on the phone was so kind to me, just you know, entertaining me. And no, pastor, we see as many fraudulent cases in, uh, in Protestant churches as we do in Catholic churches. And then I'll never forget her words, as we also see in satanic cults. And see, anything that's pure and holy is going to be imitated and distorted by the enemy. On and on we could go, and, and you can see that this is, it's troubling, and it's leading us down this path. I love what verse 13 says, about this beast. It says it performs great signs. Even fire comes down from heaven. I want you to know that, that, that Satan and his beasts are effective and they have real personalities to form an allegiance with you and to pull you away, to bring you away from the center. I, I want to give you hope this morning. And I believe John does at the end of this chapter. I want to drop down and read the last verse, verse 18. Uh, he says this. He says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now there's hope and there's confusion in this last verse. Let's deal with the confusion first. Um, again, I know you could go on the internet and start searching the mark of the beast in 666. What does that mean? Uh, if you're anywhere around my age, I don't know, I grew up at a time when my mom and particularly my grandma, my grandma was my my, kind of my spiritual guide for me. And I remember her just saying that, you know, you shouldn't even say the numbers 666. And, you know, that was like dangerous to even do. And I had a rebel cousin. And I remember one Easter, my cousin wrote on her little coloring book right at grandma's house, 666. It did not go well for that cousin of mine. But actually, let me tell you a little bit about this mark of the beast. In fact, um, we're reading Revelation. It's got this future view, but it's also got this current view. And in the current world of the Roman Empire, um, if you were anyone, you had to worship the Caesar. And that worship meant you went to the temple and you made a sacrifice. And when you made your sacrifice, they would mark your hand. And then you could go into the marketplace and you could buy and you could sell things. And you think about that, the, the Christians in the first century, they had a big choice to make. Do I, do I go to the temple and pay the sacrifice. I know I'm not worshiping Caesar, but if I don't get that mark, I can't 
go into the marketplace. I can't sell my rugs or my potatoes or whatever it is. I can't buy things for my family. And if you take that number, 666, and you take the Roman emperor at the time, Nero, and you add up the Roman numerals of his, num of his name, it comes out to be 666. But there's something about this mark that has to do with the future as well. And this is where nobody really knows what this means. I mean, does the mark of the beast mean that sometime in the future there'll be a, a mark on his followers? Like, I don't know, a, a tattoo? Maybe it's an app that you download for your phone? Maybe there's an embedded chip? Again, conspiracy theories are full in this department. There were many that thought uh, vaccines were the mark of the beast or travel IDs would be the mark of the beast. No one really knows. I do have a growing concern. I've shared it many, many times, not just about this mark, but in general, knowing how to follow and how to find truth, because I have great concern about the future of technology and faith and just the, the imposing, this point of singularity where our machines are going to become smarter than human beings. And with AI, I think that has just sped things up. And so it's, it's now, it's now that we need to spend the time to really know and to really focus on what we can know. And I think that's where he leaves us. He leaves us with some really hopeful words. He says, this calls for wisdom. A better translation of this would actually be, um, be wisdom, be the personification of wisdom. And this is what I think is needed in our world today. Uh, people that actually can kind of maybe get away. I, I think our culture is so obsessed with information. And the mature spiritual believer is actually the one that that drives for, that looks for, that seeks out wisdom. You know, really, when you come back to this number 666, um, the number seven is the number of God. It's the number of perfection throughout the Bible. So a trinity would be 777. And I think in wisdom, when we look at this number 666, it's, it's obviously less than perfect. It's describing, again, these forces of evil. But we need wisdom. Wisdom is what's needed. We need wisdom in this day, I think the greatest danger would be to leave here today and to think that you are somehow immune to this, that you are somehow immune to being pulled off center, to being taken away. I think that's what the enemy wants more than anything. And so I want to ask you to, to really focus this morning and to pray for wisdom. We need wisdom right now, wisdom in how we spend our time, wisdom in how we spend our money. Wisdom, as we've been talking in the series on, on how we worship and who we worship. And so I want to leave you just really with one question. It's the same question I started with. And it's a point of reflection for you, for you to answer, what's, what is at the center of your life? What is at the center for you? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And, and this is why we do this, to give ourselves an opportunity as a community to declare what's at the center. I hope that when you see this, that you answer very quickly in your heart and your mind that God is at the center. I hope this morning that I've showed you that there are grave dangers from strain, from moving anywhere from the center. But I also hope this morning that you dig a little bit deeper. And if you say that God is at the center, then all of your actions and all of your thoughts and all of the things that you do line up with that. I know it's summer. I know we're heading into that, that great season in Michigan, but maybe if you're honest this morning, you would just simply say, you know what? God hasn't been the center. I've been, I've been striving. I've been, I've been putting money at the center. I've been putting work at the center. I've maybe even been putting my kids at the center. And whatever it is, you just kind of have this moment of honesty, and, and you look, what's been the, 
imitation in your life? Can you spot where counterfeits have maybe drawn you away? Now is your chance. Now is your time to return to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. If you would bow your heads, I'll pray for you, please. Father God, we just pause in this moment, and I just thank you. I thank you for your truth. And as difficult as it is, and maybe as difficult as it is just to reconcile this morning, that we would have a keen understanding. You would give us spiritual eyes to see the world around us through not only our lens on earth, but through the heavenly and the spiritual lens. God, I pray that as a people, we would have this soberness about us that, that sees the evil around and, and doesn't run from it, but it embraces it and is armed with all the spiritual armor of God. God, I pray that you would equip each one of us as we leave here today to be your truth and to be your light and to be centered in your life. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.